uh, Hebrews 11, called the Hall of Fame by some, called the Hall of Faith. Got 18 individuals, one group from Abel, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, the prophets. But you got the, the highlights on people who lived a life of faithfulness, characterized by faithfulness, and then God holds them up there for us as examples of faith. And all of those folks did something. They took in God's word. They'd heard it. They believed it. And then they acted on it. And that's what you find in all of those examples. It's not just that God's word either went out from them or to them, but it's that they acted on it. They lived it out. So you've got all those examples that are, are meant to sort of engender in us that same sort of commitment to a lifelong faithfulness. And you no sooner get out of chapter 11, you get into chapter 12, and things shift suddenly, and you, you bring in this whole concept of endurance. So here are the examples or the patterns of faithfulness, chapter 11. You get into chapter 12, and then it tells us that they endured in faith, and that's your call and my call also. It's not that we're faithful in a given moment of time, only or in some particular task but it's that faithfulness is meant to be something that we endure in that we remain in for the long haul and if you remember the letter to the hebrews not entirely sure who wrote it we know it was written to jews and it was written to jews who'd trusted in jesus as messiah but times are getting hard and they're thinking about going back so this letter has two main messages the first is this Jesus is the one. Jesus is the thing. There's nothing to go back to in Judaism. Everything in the law, everything in Judaism was a shadow of Christ. Everything was about seeing the ultimate the fulfillment of everything that God had talked about in Christ. So he's the thing, nothing to go back to. And the second point, which is what we're going to focus on this morning, is don't give up. It's finish the race. So there in Hebrews 12, you've got let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Models of faith, examples of faith, and their faith, our model, also means that there's this whole thing about enduring through our race of faith, our lifetime, not giving up early, but enduring to the end. Think of endurance as staying in, remaining in, waiting, not quitting. So that's what we're talking about. So examples of faith, they finished their race. We're supposed to do the same thing. Now, in that same passage in Hebrews 12, we've got a race. It's a marathon. It's a long race. You've got to endure. And then it tells us, by the way, verses 2 and 3, Jesus endured. Same word. Jesus endured the agony of the cross. Now, nobody's endured greater pain, greater temptation to stop. You know, God thanks it was a good plan, but I'm ready to get off the bus here before the crucifixion. Jesus endured ultimately the agony of the cross verse 2 jesus endured the hostility of sinners verse 3 and then it tells us later in verse 7 if you got faith in christ you're god's children and so god treats you like his children and and god says that for us to be his children means he trains us he he nurtures us he trains us he disciplines us sometimes it's painful and that's part of endurance and faith god's our father he trains us and we're called to endure in that. So for many of us, what you'll find is this. If you've been a Christian for a while, you'll go along and you'll think, I'm doing a great job. Life's, life's going along swimmingly. I'm doing okay. 
and then the bottom falls out in one way or another. And you sort of face a, a decision, what do I do? Do I continue on faithfully, or do I cave? Or simply, life goes on in challenges longer than you'd anticipated. You feel worn out one way or another, and you just feel like maybe it's time for a break. Lord, could I time out, call time out, I'll sit down, we'll go do something else. But the, the call here is to endure even when things get tough. And if they haven't in your life, they will at some point. So we're getting back into heroes and villains this morning. Had a great series, five weeks in September. Let me remind you what we're talking about in this series. Started last summer. Heroes and villains, we're going through the Bible and we're looking at examples of heroic faith, basically. 44 positive examples, people and groups. 22 negative examples of villains, people and groups also. And basically we said this in week one that to be a hero in the faith like those men and women in Hebrews 11 is really to live a life that looks like Christ's life. And not Christ as walking on water, as miracles and supernatural power, because in Hebrews we saw that the example Christ set for us in regards to this was simple faithfulness as a man on the earth to God his Father. So that we look like heroes of the faith when we look like Christ, simply in faithfully following God, taking in His Word, choosing to believe it, to hold on to it, and then to act on it. That's what it looks like to look like Christ, the hero of heroes, the superhero. It's simple faithfulness. Faithfulness in our time, the walk of life God's put us in. To be a villain looks like uh, Satan. Satan's the ultimate, if you will, the arch-villain. He refused to honor God, his maker, by being faithful in the ways God had created him. And do you remember, it wasn't because Satan was given a raw deal. Satan, this angel of light, you know, back in the day, he's the special angel, this, this covering cherub. He had incredible glory and beauty, authority and power, but he said it's not enough. It's a reminder to you and I, the amount or the degree of blessing you and I have in our life will never satisfy our sinful desire for more. Because ultimately, what we'll find the villainy in our own hearts is always about saying, God, we want to be God. You sit aside. We'll call things our way. So to be a villain is to make much of ourselves instead of Christ. It's to choose to live life in the ways that we find best, not the ways God has called us. So the heroes and the villains, we're back in that today. We're going to start back in this message, this series with Noah. We've looked at Abel. We looked at Enoch. Abel, you remember, worshiped God faithfully. We also saw the villainy and the murderous spirit of Cain and then his descendant Lamech. So we're going to be in Genesis 6 this morning. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. We'll, I'm going to break up the reading here to make some comments along the way. Uh, but Noah and Noah and the Ark's got to be one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And there's a lot going on, and, and we're going to focus on two very small points. So if you're thinking about an exposition broadly on Noah and the Ark, that's not what we're doing this morning. Focus very narrowly on Noah's life in two particular facets. So Genesis 6, uh, Genesis we've already covered a little bit, 1 through 5, and we'd seen Cain and Abel, and we've seen some descendants, some genealogies in chapter 5. That ended with Noah, and we're going to pick up on his story, Genesis 6, uh, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless. 
in his generation. Noah walked with God. That same description was true of Enoch that was raised up by God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, at this point, Noah is only the tenth recorded generation from creation account. So in the Genesis 5 genealogies, Noah is only the tenth generation to come on the earth. And back in chapter 4, we'd already seen that there are developments in animal husbandry. People are shepherding. They've learned how to shepherd animals. There's developments in music and metallurgy. And if you go back to the creation account, and remember God said, reproduce on the earth, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it and subdue it. You're my stewards. You're my viceroys on the earth. You're going to represent me. This is what I want you to do. So at one level, it looks like they're doing what God said to do. They're reproducing. And they're developing the things on earth God put there for them. But you get to verse 5, and I've already passed that over uh, in the Scriptures lined up verse by verse, but listen to what God had already said in verse 5. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It'd be hard to get a more depressing assessment than that of our representation of the image of God on earth. Back at verse 11, he says this, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That term that we translate corrupt, it also means destroyed. God says essentially... My image bearers on the earth have corrupted or destroyed what I was up to. They themselves will be destroyed in my righteous judgment. So out of that, he says, with judgment impending in the flood, he says to Noah this, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length, 300 cubits. The width or breadth, 50 cubits. It's height, 30 cubits. Uh, We don't know exactly how big the ark was. Uh, Cubits are, uh, they vary depending on the time and the place you were talking about. You you use the body to measure uh, back in the day. So a cubit was about from the elbow. For some people it would be the elbow to the end of the hand. For Mike, it's the elbow to the closed fist. That's about 18 inches, about a foot and a half. That's the standard cubit. The royal cubit was at least 20 inches, sometimes measured at 22 inches. So if you go with the smaller scale that a cubit is a foot and a half, you're still talking about a massive structure. It'd be about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. If it's a royal cubit, it's bigger than that. So if you're trying to put that in mind, you know, if I'm sitting in a football stadium, it's a football field and half another football field long. It's half a football field wide. And it's about four to five stories tall. That ark you could put in downtown Topeka on Kansas Avenue. It would be as tall as most of those buildings, about as wide as that street and and a long, long way. So it's a huge, massive undertaking. And on this, uh, you're in a conservative church. You know that this morning and that we take Scripture as history. If you have conversations with people, lots of people, even some people, frankly, more and more people who are professing Christians today, when I say professing Christians, not calling their faith into account, but you'll talk to lots of people 
who don't think that Genesis 1 to 11 is historic, historic narrative, but that it's myth, it's extrapolation of, of other pagan stories, etc. And, and that's, not, that's not our belief here as a church, that's not my belief either, that I understand this is history. If you run into people, when we're talking to other people, we had a great Sunday school this morning, Mike Patton let us in, really talking about sharing the gospel. If you're talking to somebody about Noah and the ark, for whatever reason, and they're not a believer, do you care if they stumble or laugh or find incredulous the story of knowing the ark if they reject the gospel? What's more important? If they reject the gospel that they refuse to believe that Noah is history is, is a minor point. We, we want to focus on the gospel. Now, the truth is, as you know, if you don't believe Genesis 1 through 11 are history, you have problems with the rest of the Bible. And you simply can't escape that. So for instance, Isaiah and Ezekiel, Old Testament prophets, both refer to Noah and the ark, indicating God's willingness to judge. You've got a bigger problem. Jesus, twice in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, refers to Noah and the ark as history and narrative when he's talking about future judgment, and Peter does in 2 Peter as well. So if people look at you sideways, do you really believe that story about the, the boat and all the animals and everything? Guys, there's no problem on the story-making sense that this literally happens. So we're not, if, if they don't believe on that, that's okay. The gospel is still the thing. If we're believers, if we accept the gospel, then we certainly want to have conversations with someone who doesn't believe Genesis 1 through 11 is history that it's reality, then we can start having some other discussions. But the gospel remains the key thing. By the way, we taught on this. I taught on this 10 years ago, March 16, 2008. So if you want to hear more detail about the ark, and it is fascinating. There's all kinds of things we're just not touching today about this story, about the ark, about how it's put together, a number of things that we won't get to. So continuing on that, to verse 16, God told Noah, make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third levels. You get a little bit of a sense of that on the, the plans there you can see. I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth. I'm going to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Some people argue this was a local flood. That's pretty hard to argue for based on the language of the text. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. Every living thing of all flesh, bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. They'll be male and female, birds, animals, creeping things, two of every sort, keep them alive. Take with you every sort of food that's eaten, stored up. It shall serve as food for you, for them. So you got God's laundry list. This is what the boat's going to look like. Three levels, you got rooms. You're going to bring in food. Your family comes in. You've got to have a place for you to live. You've got ventilation at the top, et cetera, et cetera. So God gives all those directions. And you get down to verse 22, and uh, it concludes this way. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So when we read about Noah in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And listen to that again. It starts the verse, by faith, Noah, and it closes by faith. 
that Noah's this model of faithfulness beginning and end of his story. That's why he's here, this model of faithfulness. Now, it, it does bear talking a little bit about, and especially to our point this morning, Noah did not build this. This is not his ark. But what this is, this is from 2013. You can read that probably. Life-size Star Wars X-Wing fighter replica. At the time, it may not be so today, it was the largest Lego model in the world. Weighed about 46,000 pounds. Took, I think it's 32 master Lego builders, whatever that is. Are those 10-year-olds or are those 30-year-olds? <laughs> or I don't know. 32 builders. And, and, and listen to this. 17,000 combined hours to build according to Business Week. Now, when I'm looking at that, and I, Legos weren't around when Kent and I were little. It was, build, it was uh, Lincoln Logs and, and some things like that. I'm not a Lego guy, but I know they're little pieces, right? So if you look at a project this big, you're impressed that anybody or any group of people could put together that many Legos. But think about this for just a second. 17,000 man hours. If you put that in Noah's time frame, how long would it take if Noah and his three sons, if they were working, now guys, if they were four guys, they worked 40 hours a week, it'd take them a little over two years to put that together, that Lego model, okay? Now, I think that's impressive. I, I'm impressed by that. But put that on the scale of the boat, of the ark. What are we, what are we thinking there? If you go to the text... The text does not specifically, explicitly say how long it took Noah and the sons to put that boat together, explicitly. Genesis 6.3 says that, God says, that man's days shall be 120 years. And when some people read that, they say, uh, God's establishing sort of the outer limit of longevity in any individual's life. And so before the flood, you get people living eight, nine hundred years. You read the genealogies after the flood, they diminish really quickly, and you go down to less than 100 years. Think of Psalm 90 and Moses, you know, 70 years, 80 if we're really strong. Uh, my take is that it, was, it would take Noah and his sons 120 years to build the boat. That man's days left on the earth before the floods of judgment come, that's going to be 120 years. I think that's how long it took Noah and his sons to build the ark. And think about this for just a minute. All of this having to do, guys, with endurance. All of this having to do with endurance. They may or may not have hired some help. Let's just assume they didn't. So it's Noah and his family. They're building the ark. They have no power tools. They're not a, a modern guy with power tools. They have no heavy equipment. They would probably have had to have made their own hand tools. So think about this, just the process. So God says build a boat and it's this big. So they probably have to clear the land first. They probably have to clear more than a football field and a half long, trees and shrub, just to get a place big enough for this thing to be constructed. And they're spending decades of their life. Can you imagine? Build a boat, and this is how big it is. Now, no one would have had a sense of what does that look like? They would have worked probably for years just to lay the main beam, clear the land, lay the main beam, and start the skeleton of the boat. Because you're felling trees by hand. Then you're trimming them. You're trimming them to size. You're joining them all by hand with hand tools. How long would that take? Can you imagine? And the thing was so big, 
that you could work for a year or two or ten and look back and say, we will never finish. The job is too big, we'll never finish. It'd be so slow, beam by beam, board by board, year by year, decade by decade, room by room. You get the picture. And then once you finish the structure, you have to coat the whole thing inside and out with pitch. And this wouldn't have been as easy as painting. Pitch would have been sticky, really sticky. You know, but it's got to be waterproof, so you're covering it inside and out with pitch. Now, you know, isn't it funny in Scripture how sometimes Scripture, it understatement is one of God's fortes. So you go through the building of the ark, and, and what is the conclusion? It just says, no, it did it. So, right, so you start thinking about what did it look like? What did it look like? And all that, all that meant, figuring out how to build it. All that, and God just says, and he did it. I'm impressed. You know, forget the Legos. I'm impressed with Noah. Unbelievable endurance. And it's a given in the story. If you'd put Mike on that boat, you know, I'd have been swimming with the fish when the waters came. I suspect I'd have given up. That is the epitome of enduring in faith. Noah begins by faith. He ends by faith in Hebrews 11, 7. He's the epitome of of enduring faith. Uh, there's a story I'm not going to get into, but I want to reference out of Luke 17, 7 through 10, where the disciples and Jesus are talking about faith and faithfulness. And Jesus says it's like this. There's a master as a servant. The servant works in the field all day. At the end of the workday, he comes in, he dresses himself, and he makes supper for his master. I'm thinking, okay. And then Jesus says, the master doesn't thank him. Not because he's rude, but because he says the servant only did what he should have done. That's faith. You only did what you should have done. And we apply that to Noah's story. God just says he did it. He heard what I said. He believed my words. And he followed through. And it took a long, long time. He endured in faith. And God says he just did what he should have done. Just did what he should have done. You get to Hebrews 10.36, it says this, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Twice there, chapter 12 and here in chapter 10, it says you'll need to endure. Back to Hebrews 12.1, you'll have your own race of endurance. If God tells us twice in Hebrews that we're going to need to endure, what do you think we need to prepare for? endurance right it's a given in no it's a given in luke 17 but but guys what you'll find is i'm sure some of you uh, no doubt have already you go along in life and you'll find seasons of life where you don't want to endure where you think i've already done enough i've suffered enough i've been faithful enough and this should be adequate lord and i'm ready for a break so if you think all the all the ways in life that gives you a scale. Those are people below, and that's the Ark Encounter in Kentucky to get some sense of what did it look like for four guys with nothing to build a boat. That's a pretty good image of endurance, isn't it? Build something like that by hand. 
Uh, what does it look like, though, for us today to endure in faithfulness? And this could be all kinds of things, but I'm thinking of some key things here. Uh, you may find yourself in a challenging marriage in which you think, I've already done enough. I should be able to quit now. Divorce sounds pretty inviting about now. Or just caving, just saying, we don't have a good relationship, just, just the way it's going to be. Enduring faithfully in marriage, in respect and love. No small thing. In parenting, you know, we love to bring little ones into the world and do. Absolutely, we're good at that here. And, and I love that. Uh, but those little kids grow up, don't they? And so as parents, you know, your greatest hope as a Christian is to see them come to faith early. And to grow up, and that you want them to know the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord. But for some of us, what we're going to find is those kids that we wanted to come to faith early, they didn't. And you want, what do I do with that? Or they came to faith and then they walked away. Or they came to faith, but they're not walking with the Lord. And you say, I've had it with parenting. I'm done. Or maybe not. Because then you enter a new phase of life. You're no longer parenting. You're no longer even coaching once your kids are older. But you know what you find yourself doing? You find yourself called to endurance in praying for your children. It's like it's a new, it's a new phase, if you will, of faithful endurance. Because you're called as somebody else's parent. Serving in the church. Serving in this church. Don't you sometimes feel if you're in the nursery or if you're setting up or taking down... It's a thankless job. Why bother? Uh, it doesn't seem like anything's going on. I'll just cave. I'll give up. I don't need to do that. Uh, for many of us at seasons of life, it's laboring at jobs we would rather leave but can't. Stage of life, paying bills for the family. I'd really like to leave and go do something else, and I'm not free to. I have to endure. Uh, sticking out in school, for many of us, it's a season of life in which we may find ourselves in the educational or academic realm and we're preparing so that we can be faithful to what we think God's called for us in the future. And you may get to the point where you say, the classes are too many, the hours are too long, I don't like the teachers, I'd like to cave, and you're called to endure faithfully, sticking it out. Uh, continuing to say no to a gripping sin. You know, for all of us, we've got areas where we're more prone to sin than others. Uh, guys, if you're 16 and up, I hope you're here for the men's advance, the 19th and 20th. Uh, Bill's going to start us out talking about, and I loved his title. I told him, I love your title. The Pursuit, The Quest for Purity. The Quest for Purity. So purity's the goal, and I'm on a quest. And you know what that means? I Sometimes I fall down. I fail. I sin. I get discouraged by my failures. But I've got to endure, so I've got to get up again and keep at it. So in all these ways, all of us are going to face times in life, areas of our own life, where we simply want to cave. We want to get out of the race of life. And Noah is one of those paradigm examples of endurance in faith, endurance in faithfulness. That's the big thing I want you to take away this morning, that you've got to keep going, that it requires endurance. Now, I want to point something else out as well. This is the second thing. And, and by the way, related to Sunday school again this morning, uh, it was just spot on, this 
these complement each other uh, in ways I hadn't anticipated. 2 Peter 2.5 says, Noah was a herald of righteousness. His name wasn't herald. He was a herald. He proclaimed something. He proclaimed God's righteousness. Now, when you read the story in Genesis, you don't see God calling Noah that. But you get to 2 Peter, and Peter says, Noah was a proclaimer of God's righteousness. Now, imagine... Put yourself back in the day, and I think it went something like this. Noah and the boys start clearing the field. And especially once they start laying down the beams, the neighbors say, what are you doing? And Noah says, well, we're, we're building a boat. Now, depending on time and place, wherever that was in the mountains there, what's a boat? Explain what a boat is. And why are you building a boat? Well, because of the flood. What's a flood? God is going to judge the earth. A great cataclysmic flood is coming and everything on the earth that breathes for life is going to die. And you know what I think his neighbor said? Really? Oh, really? Maybe they rolled their eyes. Maybe they arched their eyebrows. Turned and walked the other way. Oh, really? But Peter says Noah was preaching the gospel, God's righteousness. Noah's work in building the ark and his proclamation, whatever that sounded like to whatever neighbors, as long as that lasted, about a coming judgment by water would have looked bizarre and sounded foolish. But remember the state of the earth. Violent corrupted, destroyed, and destroying. As long as Noah was building the boat, he was proclaiming God's coming, righteous judgment on sin, and the only means of salvation. That sounds familiar. Noah says God's righteous and we're sinful. He's going to judge us for our sin. We're going to die if we don't get in this boat. That sounds like the gospel. If you listen to the message from 10 years ago, the parallels with the gospel, they're, they're, there's more than that. But that's certainly there. That sounds like the gospel to me. God's righteous, we're not. We're, we're, we've fallen under His judgment, and there's only one way any of us can escape death, and it's inside that boat. It's inside that boat. If you're in the boat, you're saved and you're safe. If you're out of the boat... You, you're dead by God's righteous judgment. So I think neighbors of Noah said something like that. They looked just about like that. They said, really? When Paul, when the apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ writes about the gospel to the Corinthians, he's addressing a crowd a lot like folks in the United States today. They thought very highly of their own intellect, of their own ability to grasp and comprehend what was going on in the world. They had lots of opinions, just like us. And this is what Paul said to them. We preach Christ crucified. That message, Christ, who he is, God the Son on earth, incarnate, crucified, that's his work, what he did for us, died on the cross to cover our sins. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Jews don't want to hear the gospel about Jesus. It stumbles them. 
and it's folly to Gentiles. Remember the Greek world at the time emphasized academic, philosophical sophistication. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. How many people made sense of the gospel Noah preached? Those in his household. It was foolishness to everyone else. But it was the wisdom and the righteousness of God to Noah and his household. The gospel, same thing. Paradynamic. Noah's life, his faithfulness, the ark, and the gospel. One way out. Listen to the way it says this. Paul said this in Acts 17. And he said this to the Greeks. And you remember again, foolishness to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And how many people do you share the gospel with today or do I or hear the gospel today? And it's like, yeah, right. It's foolishness. Listen to what Paul said. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands, this is God's command to the world today, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That sounds like the flood. By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now what was the response to Paul in Athens when he said that? When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They said, really? They heard the gospel. Sounds pretty simple. They said, really? It says others said, we'll hear more about this. We'll listen to more of this. The gospel message of God's judgment on sin displayed in the story of Noah is repugnant to most people today. And it always has been. You'll be labeled as unloving, narrow-minded, and most damning of all in our generation, you'll be labeled judgmental if you affirm the reality of the person and work of Christ, the necessity of the gospel, God's righteous judgment coming on the earth, and Jesus as the sole means of salvation. You'll be judged as judgmental. Now guys, in this age, I don't think there's been any time in history in which shame has been more used as a club than the age we live in today. So you'll be unfriended, guaranteed, if you're a Christian and you faithfully share the message of the gospel with those around you. And I'm primarily thinking of the group, if you're not baby boomers, if you're a buster, a Gen Xer, a millennial, and whatever the next group is, you guys are subject to more temptation to rejection of the gospel, not by the threat of death, not now at least, but by this thought of, really? Do you really believe that? You've got to be kidding. You're so judgmental. You're so small-minded. Don't you, you think you're better than those people? You don't think they're good, as good as you? Do you think God's so unloving that he would actually have a hell at all? To hold the gospel today and to faithfully proclaim it requires endurance in faith. Noah built, probably, for 120 years. Noah proclaimed the message of God's righteousness, probably, for 120 years. Let me ask you this. How many takers did Noah have? He's proclaimed the gospel for 120 years. How many converts did he have? Zero. The only people on that boat were Noah and his family. But he proclaimed the gospel anyway. 
Do you ever feel like it makes, we see so few converts today. And by the way, I think this is a truism. I, I don't think we see that many people getting saved today in the West. Lots in parts of Africa, the East, the Middle East, lots of people coming to faith. Not that many in the West. What should we do? We should proclaim the gospel anyway. That's what Noah did. That's what we're called to, proclaim the gospel anyway. Now, if I tell you you got a long race, run with endurance, the race sets for it. It's a long race. It's a long road. It's 120 years or whatever our version of that is. It can sound like an onerous burden on your back. It's all on me. I've got to do it. God's loaded me down with this weight. Now I've got to be faithful. I've got to endure. And that's not, in fact, what we're saying. God does tell us to endure. He does tell us to stick with us. But let's go back to Noah for just a second. In Genesis 6-8, the text says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, or favor, some translations say. Uh, God's grace is not something we earn. Let's make sure we're clear on this. When it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, God graced Noah. Noah was a sinner like you and I are sinners, okay? There's none righteous, no, not one. Noah was not the exception to the rule on that. God graced Noah. In his sovereign mercy and will, he chose to set his grace on Noah. And the grace that he poured out on Noah to choose Noah, to sovereignly elect Noah to be his man and his family, to, to preserve the image bearers of God on the earth, that grace was adequate for Noah to persevere, to endure in faith. In other words, when we say God's calling us to an enduring faithfulness, we're not saying God's put a burden on our back and it's all up to us to do it. God knows us better than that. If God marks iniquity, who can stand? God knows our frame. He's aware we're just dust. How much confidence do you think God has in us? About the right amount. It's God's grace that saves, and then it's God's grace that gives us the ability to endure. So we have a responsibility. We're not saying we don't. But we want to make sure that we're, we're getting this. The grace that saves is the grace that enables us to endure in faith. The grace that saves is the grace that enables us to endure in faith. Let me read you this. This is a real short closing illustration. Uh, there's a guy named Pastor Thomas Vincent. He was a pastor in London in 1665 when the bubonic plague hit. They didn't know what to call it at the time, but that's what it was. That's what we know it was today, the plague. Now, like all plagues, when this started, there's just a few people started getting sick and they started having certain kinds of pains and, and they started dying and nobody really knew what was going on. But once the thing took hold, there were over 500 people a week in London. One wasn't the size then that it is now. Over 500 people a week dying from the plague. That the first year there was over 70,000 and many think that's grossly underestimated. Over 70,000 died the first year from the plague. So you can imagine, if everybody around you is getting sick and dying, what are you going to do? You're going elsewhere. 
And that's what lots of people did. And that's what many of the pastors in London did. Thomas Vincent didn't. Now, he had no divine revelation from God that said stay. He had no divine revelation from God that said stay and you won't get the plague. But he didn't. But he simply stayed. And he continued to shepherd the flock of God there in London as long as he was there, as long as they were there. And this is what he said. And listen to how he combines love and faith with endurance, because that's what he puts together here. He says this, If you have but little love to Christ, you will be apt to faint in the day of adversity. You'll shrink when you are called to take up His cross and suffer for His sake. Lesser sufferings, or, or maybe what we would consider more milder forms of persecution or sufferings, they will decompose you. You'll feel like you're losing yourself, like you're falling apart a bit. He says, but greater suffer sufferings will frighten you and amaze you. Have you ever said, Lord, I can't believe this is going on in my life? I can't believe what they did. I can't believe what's happened. He says, you will be in danger of turning into fearful apostates in time of great troubles. Life's too hard. I'm chucking it in. I'm done. There is need of great love to Christ as well as great faith to carry you through sufferings with courage that you may persevere or that you may endure to the end. That we may endure in faith have a faith that endures like Noah's. So Noah's a hero of faith, starts in faith, ends in faith, paradigm or picture of pursuing, enduring faith. Hey, as the worship team comes up, would you stand with me? And I want to read together, as we've been doing in this series, something from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We're called to faithfulness. We're called to look for Christ's return. But at the end of the day, this is about what God is going to do. Hey, guys, you want to? yeah, thanks. Leave that up for just a second. Let's read this together. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He surely do it. Amen.